This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Hello, and welcome back to another edition of the Heredity Podcast. In this episode, we'll take a look at speciation in the presence of gene flow in the European corn borer moth and explore the competitive exclusion principle in the Brazilian Tugotugos. The underlying processes behind speciation come up again and again on the podcast. It's clear that genetic differentiation plays an important role in the divergence of two would-be new species. But genetic divergence can be stopped in its tracks by recombination. If diverging lineages sexually reproduce, their genetic material recombines and this mixing up homogenizes those lineages. Which makes speciation in the presence of gene flow a bit of a puzzle. Chromosomal rearrangements like inversions can suppress recombination and are therefore thought to be key to speciation in the presence of gene flow. I called Eric Dotman of Tufts University Department of Biology, who's testing whether recombination suppressors play a role in a textbook example of speciation, the European corn borer moth. Here's Eric. Well, I mean, species genomes are often very different, you know, when we look at them, say, between, you know, humans and dog. And you know, these differences become more extreme as time goes on. Genetic differentiation is a sort of a fundamental pattern for species, and it's also a, a major hallmark of the speciation process, and that is, you know, when one species splits into two. But it's sort of still unclear how this pattern initially occurs. So we can imagine that one or the other of our two sort of new species is experiencing a different environment, and so uh, selection is acting on its genome, and that suddenly generates genetic differentiation. It's also possible that our two new species are still exchanging genes, and the only regions of the genome that become and remain differentiated are those which contribute to uh, reproductive isolation. So we can imagine that alleles from one species are constantly being introduced into the genetic background of our second species, but then selection is constantly removing those from the gene pool. So we often imagine that selection is probably relatively strong. Otherwise, you know, these two genomes will homogenize. We know that, you know, if selection is involved in generating divergence, no matter whether it's because of local adaptation or because of you know, reproductive isolation, the amount of recombination is uh, strongly determining how large of a, of a portion of a genome is, is being influenced. And so at the genomic level, then, what kind of things affect the rates of recombination? Right. Well, one thing that can affect the rate of recombination are structural mutations. So an example would be an inversion. 
and inversion suppresses recombination. So consequently, um, if we have selection acting on something contained within the inversion, the effect of selection um, is sort of distributed along the, the entire length of the, of the inversion. So just to be clear then, the idea is that divergence can happen in the presence of gene flow if recombination is suppressed by something along the lines of one of these big inversions or structural rearrangements of the genome. That's right. That sort of facilitates the process. And what about the kinds of genes within these inverted regions? Need they be sort of selectively adaptive? Not initially. So simply the presence of an inversion is going to suppress uh, recombination. And I think, you know, as a consequence of that suppression of recombination, you can more easily allow for um, locally adaptive alleles to accumulate in those regions. And then, you know, the, the sort of process snowballs. And so the idea with this paper was to test whether this mechanism, this suppression of recombination, was behind the speciation between different strains of the European corn borer moth. Sure, that's exactly right. That was the purpose of the study. European corn borer moths are, you probably would never characterize them as being charismatic. They're sort of a very drab uh, moth. But we find them especially interesting because they're in the process of splitting into two new species. And they're very early in this process. Um, they differ in a number of, of traits which limit uh, gene flow, like differences in the female pheromone blend that males are attracted to, like differences in phenology or the timing of their life cycles. And these differences limit gene exchange, random gene flow between uh, these two lineages, which we call Z and E strains. So they're not yet different species, these two strains? <laughs> it depends on, on who you ask. So because we know that they still exchange genes, uh, some people would probably not call them two species. So I'm particularly interested in the sort of process of speciation. So what people call them, I'm less interested in. So to answer the, the initial question that your paper kind of posed, it's quite an involved experiment, isn't it? It is. Yeah, it required us to sort of study three different kinds of phenomena. So if inversions are involved in speciation, we sort of expect, um, well, number one, that recombination is suppressed in the inverted region. We also expect that, you know, genes which are involved in speciation, that is, you know, genes which cause traits and these trait differences limit interbreeding, we expect those genes to be within inversions. And then Finally, we expect higher rates of gene flow outside of the inversion compared to uh, inside the inversion. So we studied these three things in Zini strains of European corn borers. Okay, so let's just break down the results into those three that you just mentioned there. First of all, then, you, you did these crosses. Uh, what did you learn about the rates of recombination then between these strains? Yeah. So what we learned is that within strain, a pair of markers are about 4 million base pairs apart or so. Within strain, those um, experience quite a lot of recombination. But between strains, uh, the two markers show no amount of recombination. So we looked in over 600 offspring, and none of them showed evidence of recombination between markers, which are 4 million base pairs apart. And so that, that, that's evidence for this being the mechanism behind speciation. That's evidence for, you know, suppressed recombination, and it's preliminary evidence for the presence of, a, of an inversion. We'd like to have some cytology in order to really pr 
prove that an inversion is present, but this is suggestive of, of the presence of an inversion. And what about that second prediction then, that the genes involved in reproductive isolation were, were thought to be contained in this inversion? Yeah, that's a good question. So uh, with the second prediction, we found that a major, what we called QTL, or a major genetic factor that determines temporal isolation uh, is contained within the inversion. And finally, then, your third prediction that the areas outside of these inversions would, would have elevated levels of gene exchange, was that seen to be true? Well, so genes with inside the inversion showed elevated levels of genetic differentiation uh, consistent with reduced gene flow. Uh, regions outside the inversion showed uh, reduced levels of differentiation suggesting uh, that there is gene flow. So all three of the predictions that you tested have now pointed towards the fact that these strains are speciating in the face of gene flow through this mechanism of suppressed recombination. Absolutely. And so would you say that this mechanism is responsible for, you know, the great diversity that we see in the Lepidoptera, in the butterflies and moths? I'm not sure that I could say that now, but I think it, you know, this finding definitely motivates me to wonder and and, uh, to begin to develop some studies in other Lepidoptera to explore this idea. Because you mentioned in your paper that the Lepidoptera have the highest, some of the highest rates of these kind of structural rearrangements. Yeah, so it's true. Lepidopter, they do have some of the highest rates of rearrangements of the taxa that have been studied. And one reason why that might be the case is because they have very different sort of centromeric locations. They have what's known as holocentric uh, chromosomes. So it's possible that they, I don't know, sort of allow for structural rearrangements to occur and they decrease the, the fitness consequences of those mutations. That was Eric Doltman. Our next story takes us over to the coast of Brazil, to the underground world of the Tuco-Tuco, a subterranean rodent comprised of several species. The competitive exclusion hypothesis states that two competing species can't coexist in the same place at the same time under a limited resource. In reality, species rarely lead identical lives, but there are instances where similar species come into contact with one another in narrow sympatric zones. One way for a species to reduce the conflict is to tailor their diets to slightly different food resources. Carla Lopez, whilst at the Université Joseph Fourier in Grenoble, France, has been studying a pair of tuco-tuco species, the tiny tuco-tuco and the tuco-tuco of the dunes, which live side by side on the coastal plains of Brazil and share a narrow sympatric zone. She and her team analysed their diets by collecting faecal samples in order to see how it is they manage to live in each other's habitats. Here's Carla. We work with two species. Both species live in southern Brazilian coastal plain. They are parapatrically distributed. One of the species is called Tucutuco from dunes because they inhabit exclusively the first line of sand dunes on the beach. And the other species is Team Tucutuco and they inhabit the sand fields in their southern distribution. But both species can occur in the dunes for about uh, 15 kilometers. Okay, so there are these two different species, but they do share a narrow zone of sympatry. Yeah, in the middle of the distribution of the Kini Tukutuku. Okay, so why does this make a good population to study competition? 
cases of sympathy in this genus is not so common, and this is the second case registered so far. So this species geographically distributed in a way that we can compare their diet when they are distributed allopatrically or even sympatrically. So your aim in this study then was to analyze what kind of foods these closely related species were eating to assess whether they were competing directly for those resources. How did you obtain the samples? Most of the time we use snap traps to catch them. So they live in galleries, so we open the galleries, we put the snap traps inside, we catch them, and during the manipulations they commonly eliminate feces. Other times we can find the feces inside the burrows when we open the galleries, so we just collect these samples. And so from these fecal samples, how do you identify their dietary composition? We applied a method called DNA metabarcoding. It's a DNA metabarcoding approach. Basically, we extract the DNA from these feces and we amplified this DNA using universal primers designed for plants or arthropods, for example, just to confirm if they are herbivorous. And all the PCR products were mixed together and sequenced in the next generation sequencers. And we used the bioinformatics to the results to filter the sequences, annotate and attribute the taxonomy to these sequences, comparing with a reference database that we prepared before. So you have reference databases then that help you identify which plant species they're eating? Yeah, we we went to the field, we sampled some plants around the burrows, we identified these, these plants, we extract the, the DNA, and we sequence the same uh, genes to apply in the metabarcoding approach into the plants, and then we can use the database to attribute the taxonomy to the sequences that we retrieve from feces. It kind of surprises me that the plant DNA survives the digestion process. Yeah, it's not so easy like that because the DNA is highly degraded in the feces. So we use primers that amplify around 100 basic pairs, 50 basic pairs, not much than 150 basic pairs because the DNA is really degraded. Okay, but there's enough for you to be able to identify their diet. Yeah, it's not all the time that we arrive until the species level, but we can reach at least the family level. Let's hear about the results then. What were these two closely related species eating? Are they herbivores? The tiny tukutuku, we found 13 plant families in their diet. And the tukutukus from dunes, we observed 10 plant families. So they are eating basically plants. Okay, now the aim of your study then was to assess whether there was competition for resources in these sympatric zones. Did they become any more specialist 
or did they partition their dietary composition at the sympatric zones? Apparently, just the tukutuku from dunes become more specialist. They are generally less generalist than the tiny tukutuku all over its geographic distribution, but in the sympatric region, it seems that tukutuku from dunes has a diet even more restricted than outside the sympatric region. And do you think that that is because of competition between the species, or is this what you'd expect? It's a little bit difficult to state it like that, because we had uh, analyzed just few individuals, and the samples were not collected in all four seasons. But it seems that the change in the patterns of food selection could be consequence of some kind of avoidance of competition. So what factors do you believe were affecting their dietary composition? One of the factors is the availability of resources in the environment. In general, plants that are more common in the environment are also more commonly retrieved in the diet of both species. So the resource availability is strongly related to the plants more or less used by them as food items. Okay, so what your results really show then is that across the distribution of these two species, what they eat is mainly down to the availability of the different species of plant. But in this narrow sympatric zone, there may be a small effect of competition. Yes, exactly. Do you think it says anything fundamental about the competitive exclusion principle? This paper can show that species can adapt to different uh, situations and changes are not uh, close. They can change in time and in space and depend on the population density, the resource of the ability, the interactions between the species, and the, the congeneric species and with other species. We have a lot of factors acting in this kind of natural environment. So sometimes it's difficult to to analyze all these things together. So the diet analysis is just one of the first steps to better understand this kind of competition in the sympathetic zones. That's it for this month's show. Join us again next time for a fresh edition of the Heredity Podcast. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. 